Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet live event on common colic questions brought to you free by Assured Digestive Aid. Visit them online at shop.arenas.com, the URL that you see at the bottom left of your screen. I'm Christy West, digital editor and producer for the Horse.com. Joining us today to answer your questions about this topic are Anthony Blixlager, DVM, PhD, Diplomate ACVS, Professor of Equine Surgery and Gastroenterology at North Carolina State University, and Jay Altman, DVM, Veterinary Management Consultant with Arenas. Thank you all for joining us today. And before we start, I'll tell you that we've received hundreds of questions before this event, so clearly we will only get to a few of the, to a fraction of them. But we've picked out several to try and cover all the topics of interest related to colic. Once we're through with those, we have some time left, we'll move on to your live questions. If you would like to ask a question, you might want to hang around for a bit to see if we already have a similar one. And if not, please type your question into the chat box at the bottom of the control panel on your screen. Now for our first question, which is from Larry in Maryland, he would like to know to just simply define colic to learn about the basics and causes of colic. Okay, so this is uh, Anthony Blickflogger. And um, for me, colic is just like in children. So it means abdominal pain almost all of the time. Um, but they can't tell you where it is because they can't talk. So that's what colic is. Um, and then basics and causes, um, mostly it's a, actually a management disease. So we've created it in large part ourselves because we've taken horses from what they're used to doing, which is being out on, uh, on the prairies uh, grazing, and um, now they have a little bit more intensive lifestyle. Um, we can talk about the uh, the major types, um, gas and twist, the uh, least. So 90 plus percent are going to be uh, medical in nature, and so they're not going to be twists. That's going to be least common, fortunately. Most common is uh, how they digest. And then depending on where you live, things like sand. I think that pretty well sums it up, um, other than the fact or the small intestine most often. Um, but again, mo a large number of them in the field are, are hard to diagnose. We, we do have conditions and or uh, presentations, but not, no, not a full diagnosis. Gotcha. All right, our next question is from Diana in Vermont, who would like to know how common is colic? She reads and hears about it a lot, yet has no direct experience with it. Depending upon which study you read, that's going to vary somewhere between diagnoses that require immediate immediate surgery, surgical intervention. Okay, so there's one dramatic one that requires immediate intervention. So it's an absolute um, emergency, and that would be a twisting of the large colon, called large colon torsion or volvulus, depending on which surgeon you're talking to. <laughs> and um, the most common would be a thoroughbred broodmare. Shortly after falling, there's lots of space in there, um, and they also then go undergo a change in management, so they get different speed, um, which can presumably, we're guessing, lead to increased gas buildup, a colon moves around, and sometimes twists, and then it becomes an absolute emergency because once it's twisted, you have about three hours maximum um, to get that untwisted. And and uh, several people would like to know what the rate of recovery is after colic surgery, and when can you ride the horse again? Yeah, I guess as a surgeon, I'm, um, I'm going to say, so um, uh, but there's some nice recent studies on this, and, and so these rates are going up, and so there's some uh, cause for optimism when it comes to colic. Um, the price is also going up, unfortunately. But any case, um, of all the horses, owners select or uh, uh, want to us to take the surgery, um, so it's their, it's their choice always, then 85% uh, or so are discharged. Now, when you follow them long term, meaning like around six months, depends what type of colic. So if it's a small intestinal twist, for example, that can drop down as much as 20%. But if it was just an impaction or so uh, like a feed impaction, um, it wouldn't drop nearly as dramatically as that. 
Um, when can you ride the horse again is included in that question too, I think. And um, so you can you can start riding them again after two months. <clears throat> Very good. That's pretty consistent across any surgical case. Yeah, I mean, what what happens is once the surgery's been done, the um, discharge instructions that you receive from the surgeon mostly relate to the incision. So it takes a while for the incision to regain its normal strength, and uh, so it's it's actually very weak. Uh, it's just got the 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 stitches holding it together, and then it even gets a little bit weaker still as they melt. And then uh, it gradually builds up strength. So after two months, it's just light riding is all we recommend. And then you build up that um, over time. And uh, realistically, I think that owners should be thinking more along the lines of four to six months to get their horse back to where it was when they first started, especially um, if it's a, a, a competition horse that's uh, got to get all the muscle tone back and so on. Gotcha. Very good. And we have another question that's actually come in from our live audience regarding uh, colic and surgical cases. Uh, if someone lives uh, three hours from the nearest referral hospital, what is the best way to transport, transport a colic case? This is from Carol. Quickly. Uh, <laughs> Quickly. Yeah. Quickly, I mean, three hours, that's about our radius. In, in Raleigh, North Carolina, we have a radius of about three hours. And uh, um, so uh, let me just first say something really simple, which is um, to make sure for the farm, I know this might sound silly, but to have a truck and one or the other is missing. Um, like they can't find it or they lent it to someone, for example. And, and uh, that, that's a, a bit frustrating, I think, for everyone. Um, and then the band, uh, if that's the type of trailer you have, um, trailers work just fine. Um, it, la uh, it allows them to, to move around. And if you do have a partition, you can move it to one side if you feel like the horse is just going to have to go down. Because if it has to go down, it's going to find a way to do it. This question is from Gail in Ohio, who would like to know, why is it that a horse that has undergone colic surgery for a displacement is more prone to have a recurrence? Or another that episode? would... Sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm bumping in. So uh, the main reason is adhesion. So the, uh, the, the, the intestine is not designed, as, you, as everyone can imagine, uh, to be handled. And so when it is handled, you kind of, uh, no matter how careful you are, you kind of scrape the superficial layer. Um, and, it's that, and then what it does is it becomes inflamed and it can stick to a neighboring piece of intestine. And so then for that reason, um, once uh, you get that would be then adhesions, then those are more likely to have colic again. The only other one is the most common area, and some of those will keep coming back. Alright. And Christine from Wisconsin would like to know, how does colic cause laminitis, and what percentage of colic patients end up with laminitis when they're treated medically versus surgically? Yeah, I guess I get this one too. As a, uh, I'll, I'll take this one as a surgeon and see uh, if Dr. Altman has some comments here. But um, um, ultimately, we don't completely understand this. But what happens is it will release either whole bacteria or parts of bacteria, like bacterial toxins, and they system, as in like white cells. Um, and uh, they're actually going to all the different orbs just, uh, you know, as you can imagine for a very sick person um, uh, that's, that's dealing with a major event like this. But the trouble is we see laminitis because um, the horse's foot is very highly developed to the extent that it unfortunately has very small blood vessels. So when it gets inflamed, it gets uh, into trouble pretty quickly. Uh, fortunately, the percentage of colic patients, I don't have an exact percentage for you. I, 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 there, are some, there are some papers out there, but um, relatively few um, end up foundering. So it would be far more common to or, or develop laminitis after diarrhea, infectious diarrhea, uh, 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 
uh, metritis, which is the section of the, um, of the reproductive tract after following. Um, so it's the ones that get really sick because they have a lot of uh, dead bowel that end up uh, being at risk of laminitis. Gotcha. And David from Texas would like to know what symptoms are severe enough to warrant having the vet out to look at the horse? Well, David, that's a very common and uh, often asked question. Um, and I typically advise my clients that any sign of colic, they should be on the telephone first, that that should be their first step. I know there are several other questions that were submitted very similar to this, but, um, you know, symptoms that are um, truly severe enough to warrant having the vet out can change over a short period of time. So what looks like a very mild case of colic, um, you know, the same one that they may in fact not walk off and within a half hour you could potentially have a horse that's throwing themselves on the ground and, and in real distress and in real trouble. So, you know, obviously there is some, you, you need to take into consideration also how far, how far your vet may be from you, as mentioned earlier. Um, as well as any just normal travel time. And things can turn, um, turn from mild to severe rather quickly. I'd just like to add as a, like a vet at a vet school um, that uh, I'd really like to encourage owners um, to get in touch with their veterinarian just as Dr. Altman pointed out, as soon as possible. So just if you've got any concerns, um, I'd really like for the word to get to that vet as fast as possible because what we're really trying to do is overall, as a, as a, it's really a team. So it's the owner, the referring vet, and then, uh, and then ultimately it can be all trying to capture these cases that are more severe, the ones that are not uh, going to resolve. Fortunately, most are, but we're trying to get these ones that are not. And the best way to do that is to cut the time down on every, you know, any place you can, including this one, which is calling the vet. Mm -hmm. Good point, Sarah. And we have a, a few questions on first aid and what you can do while waiting for the vet coming up for the moment. Um, we'd like to ask the audience for turn for the risk of colic. You could take a moment and your screen um, to a question in the moment. It's from David of Texas. Who, there are other symptoms that can present themselves two to three weeks before a colic episode that you should look for. Well, Patricia, um, 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 mild, um, mild colic that may actually, they may actually, I've had cases where the hooking for that was going on. So, you know, there, there can be mild bouts of colic that are um, uh, unrelenting and, and long-term. Um, but those are the rare cases. Typically, colic is an acute situation and comes on right away. Um, uh, as far as the symptoms that might appear two or three, three weeks prior to a colic, they would be your typical colic symptoms, you know, mild pain, maybe looking at their sides, maybe lying down more often um, or staying down on the ground and uh, relaxing that way uh, longer periods of time than they normal do, normally do, or potentially even um, uh, some diarrhea that's been occurring. But other than most, by and large, uh, by and far, um, most colics are, are quite unfortunately, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Well, the uh, all right. So the results of our poll so far, I see 34% uh, of our eyes are 19% of you are slightly concerned. Only 1% of you is not concerned at all, which of course is quite logical, given that you're all here for a session on colic. All right, we'll move on to our next question. As it seems to her that colic is far more prevalent today than in horses 20 or 30 years ago. Do you agree with that? And why do you think that is? If you do today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I think as I get older, I realize that my view of maybe, maybe that's going on for you too, Janet, but I think, I think we had, um, we had um, just as many colics in the Our primary cause of colic was um, intestinal parasites, and uh, they were by and large the um, intestinal parasites. With our modern dewormers, <clears throat> has gone down substantially very close to us, but it's very close to zero. We rarely see a case of internal parasites or quote-unquote worms um, causing colic, yet I don't think that our colic incident or rate has gone down 
over the last 30 years either, even though we've eliminated the number one cause. And that's because there's a real change in management. Management has become more intense. Um, we're asking more and more out of our horses. More and more horses are being housed on smaller and smaller properties. And the intensity of that leads to uh, increased stressors that lead to more digestive disturbance. I uh, I totally agree. We thought that once uh, we came with a really effective dewormer, that would be um, ivermectin, blood clots in the uh, circulation to the gut, biz, and um, and uh, things would be much better. But um, but but the, I don't think things have changed much at all, and and that must be because of the reasons that Dr. Altman mentioned. I, I agree with that entirely. Christine in New York, who would like to know what causes enterolifts? Perhaps we could start with what is an enterolift. <laughs> out of, um, the most common one is made of a substance called struvite, which has got um, calcium, magnesium. Typically, if, when you get one of these, so they're usually round, not always, but usually half with a bandsaw, you try to see, well, what's usually what's at the core is a little piece of grit. And then uh, layers of mineral formed around that until it got large enough to plug up the horse and gut the, the colon. Um, sometimes you find a farrier's nail, like where, the, you know, where they've clipped it off or something. Like um, we're trying to case we, we typically can't blame them. It's not their fault. So that's, that's what they are. But the strange thing is that they're um, regional. So we see them on the East Coast there. They see them a lot in the, on the West Coast in California. And it has been related to, um, they're trying to figure out why exactly, but to some extent, it. but uh, the conditions when they measure them in the colon don't quite make sense. It's meaning the conditions that you would, if you put in them in a make, start making an enterolith, it doesn't all add up. So there's more to that story. We don't quite know yet. All right. And one thing that was said earlier, uh, Carol noted that Dr. Altman mentioned diarrhea as a symptom of colic, and she thought the gut stopped working during colic. This is um, abdominal pain in the truest definition of the word, and um, digestive disturbance of any type can cause diarrhea. Diarrhea um, is typically, um, uh, or at least, non-bacterial causes for um, diarrhea in horses is usually a motility disturbance. And along with that motility disturbance can come um, colic. I hope that explains it well. well um, can make them a little bit painful, too. And then uh, we have, so we always have to be careful to take a temperature on the horse. Um, the final thing I'll say about that is that in the hospital, we noticed that there were some cases where they would have major diarrhea, and then we would get that uh, sorted out, and then they would colic afterwards. And we were thinking, well, what was going on there? Well, what was happening was during that major bout of diarrhea, they were dumping um, all those contents from the, from the colon, had to go someplace. So they're all coming out um, the rear end, and um, on occasion, the, 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 the most distal or the, the, the last part of the uh, gastrointestinal tract is also inflamed. And so it can get stuck. That would be called a small colon impaction. And so um, uh, a major risk for small colon impaction would be diarrhea. So we just have to make sure once we've corrected the diarrhea that they're fully corrected and they're going to have colic afterwards. And I saw that quite often in field practice also, you know, that following the diarrhea or even vice versa sometimes, you know, you would clear up an impaction colic, small colon impaction, and, uh, and then have some diarrhea following it. So um, uh, it would be nice if we had a, uh, a crystal ball to look into that abdomen with each one of these cases and have a better idea. But many times, um, even with diarrhea, um, we don't have a definitive diagnosis. Um, uh, not all the time, but many time at least, times at least in a field practice, we're not dealing with a definitive diagnosis. I think the other important thing to remember is that colic, um, um, colic is, um, 
is many times caused can be caused by many things, and distinguishing between the um, colic condition that's being dealt with and the cause of it are two distinctly separate issues, and it becomes a tangled mess sometimes when we're talking about them because they go hand in hand. Very good. Not that the inside of a horse looks like a tangled mess, right? to <laughs> me <laughs> frequently. Very good. We have a uh, question from Drew Ann in Texas who would like to know if there's anything different that you do for minis versus full-size horses in terms of... Minis and to, I mean, I, I don't want to offend these, or, or you can even view them like horses. So you do all the things that you would do to try to prevent colic um, in a horse. But this they get uh, more frequently, and that are uh, that is a fecal lift, which and a fecal lift means that's clogging up the um, the works uh, at the very last part of there. Uh, and did a conference in uh, Canada, and uh, there was a veterinarian there who. Uh, essentially has a, a mini practice. Um, so mostly that's what this, he had them um, all trimmed, so um, removing as much hair as possible and also removing on the fence line, um, then the risk of that went down and that's because most of these fecal lifts have hair in them and that's why they probably formed in the first place. <laughs> the short and simple way of saying that. Yeah. I don't think right. that I ever treat that many, you know, maybe a few dozen over the years that were worth colicking that wasn't an impaction. They were way too big to go into a mini. And so, you know, that diagnosis is certainly presumptive. <laughs> sure. But it's true. That's what they mostly yeah. get. We can um, we can ultrasound them, and uh, but that, that doesn't... Um, which would replace the could uh, approach them the same way, and uh, that's almost always what they have. Yep. Our audience, another quick poll: Which supplements do you use, or which supplements who is most influential in that decision? Our next question is one that's uh, was a very common question. I'd like to know what are the symptoms of fan colic compared to other types of colic, and how do you treat or prevent it any differently from other types of colic? Oh, that's a, that's a large question. That one I could take up not just the full hour, but probably a day worth of limited time. Um, we don't have that kind of time, so I'll try to keep it fairly succinct. Um, um, we'll first talk about the symptoms, and the symptoms of sand colic can be just like any other kind of colic, you know, a rapid display of abdominal pain, whether it's looking at their sides, biting at their sides, um, trying to lie down, trying to roll. Um, but some some sand column, uh, sometimes it goes from cow patty to um, even projectile diarrhea. Um, and then um, others, of, of the, um, others of the sand colic um, uh, types um, will have a mild, um, low-level colic over a period of time until the owner really realizes that, that it is colic that's going on. They just think their horse is having a bad day, let's say. And that could go on for several days, and then all of a sudden they realize, no, there's something really wrong. So um, sand colics can present a little differently and can have some earlier warnings than other types. Um, uh, sand colic uh, um, prevention uh, goes into a long list of, of um, things that, that, as an owner, you need to manage, which includes, you know, feed, making sure not, um, not feeding in all um, dry lot turnout um, and basically trying to um, put mats in your stalls, especially have sand or component of sand, having those stalls matted. Um, anything you can do to eliminate the ingestion of sand is part of the preventative. Um, as far as, um, um, as, far as um, most management situations go, unfortunately, um, Unfortunately, most owners can't control all. Therefore, as far as preventing, um, you know, this 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 program is sponsored by Arenas and the Assure products. Well, I actually was the person that developed those, and one of my primary focus was to have a prophylactic or product that people could use to um, uh, to um, with confidence. Um, avoid getting sand accumulation. And so those products were definitely designed for that. So there are things that you can do. Um, historically, psyllium's been used. Um, uh, plain psyllium has had um, mixed results 
as a prophylactic for sand. There have been various other TRAN. Um, nothing, nothing that has stood the test of time and proven itself to be very reliable. Um, the issue of years, and as a matter of fact, they were researched at Colorado State University, um, you know, removal capabilities. So um, that's... I'll go ahead and share the results of our recent poll. Very quickly, 5% of our audience says it's their veterinarian. 31% say it's a fellow horseman. 5% each uh, listen most to their trainer or to Azing, and 3% for tech and feed store employees. So we'll move on to our next question now. Vaughn from Illinois has a number of questions. Um, we'll start with what, are the vital, what is the vital information or the vital signs on the horse that the veterinarian needs before leaving the clinic for an emergency call, especially since many owners live in remote locations without quick... I am sometimes. <laughs> but um, uh, simplify things as much as possible um, in, uh, so that down the time. Um, pictures. And... Um, so, you know, perhaps just um, put those. And the first one um, would be a severe case of colic. That's actually from, um, to take pictures much. The second penny, it's a horse that's just showing mild signs of colic. And so to try to communicate amongst each other, I think it just helps have varying degrees of agreement with that, but something like something else. But that's fair enough, I think. The only other thing I could say about um, what anything to that um, making a call, um, you know, I mean, there are obviously ways we prefer things are done because you know we're trained and um, uh, and there are ways we like to do things. But what well, it's just like going to the doctor's office, and you don't really want to answer the question. It's like you don't want to answer the question from the dentist as to whether you floss or not. But it's it's really helpful. That question there on colic first aid is um, how to lay out a plan before a colic hits, and this is a really good one. So, mm -hmm. what we do uh, on the the two farms that I'm associated with, the one is my parents, and the other is um, is mine. Is we have a, a sheet um, that each it's just a single sheet that each owner gets to fill out, just like a, it will almost be like going to a um, any kind of medical clinic, and they ask you to fill out things, which nobody likes to do. But it says, you know, um, just some information, some basic information about the horse, but then which veterinarian, as a trainer or a farm owner, which veterinarian do you want to have called? Um, what uh, level of care do you want? Meaning, if this horse needs to be referred, do you want to do that, and do you realize how much it costs? And then following along from that um, would be um, uh, uh, if surgery is needed, if they tell me, some, do I want to go that far or do I not? And again, uh, ins uh, insurance plays a part in that. So for that colic sheet I'm talking about, insurance information would, would be really nice. Um, and so, and then the other parts of the plan are just, I mentioned before, but to get the truck and trailer ready, and, um, uh, and just to make things simple for the veterinarian, it really helps to have a point person, preferably the owner, but if not, the owner of the farm or the trainer, but a point person who can make emphatic decisions. So. Um, that we don't have to have a, a long conversation and then get on the phone with somebody else or we can't find somebody, for example. Um, then I've got down to number three, absolutely what not to do. I think the biggest thing there would be, um, um, so and one thing to do would be not to keep treating in the hope that it's, just, it's going to get better by itself before you call a vet. I mean, uh, I, honestly, I think it would be nice to know what's going on before you do anything. That can even be state law, but I, I'm not going to get into anything like that. I think that the point is if you keep, I mean, that for, for us as veterinarians is just critical um, to know uh, uh, how they respond to could potentially uh, delay things for quite a while. And then uh, number four would be what management conditions predispose horses to colic. So it's, it's everything they're not designed to do. So they're designed to be out um, 
grazing, and so uh, so they, what they digest the best is forage, meaning hay or, or, or even grass being the gold standard. Uh, and um, to some degree, um, uh, they're herd animals. Now, mostly they can be mentioned in twos and threes, and that, and that works quite well, too. Um, so if you do the inverse of that, which sometimes is necessary because of their what they do for a living. So the inverse would be lots of grain. Um, so you build the diet up sort of backwards. And, and, and um, I don't, backwards, by, I mean uh, adding you know, all the grain you can and, and then a little bit of hay on top of it would be the wrong way to, to, to make a diet. Um, and also, when you keep them inside a lot, um, just realize that uh, it just puts that horse, uh, it's not been proven by any means, but um, it probably puts them at increased risk of developing colic. Gotcha. A lot of good information there. We've got a couple of very kind of similar questions. Rachel from North Carolina would like to know, should any type of pain medication like Vanamine be given before a vet has seen the horse? And I'll get to the next one here in a minute. So we'll go with that. Well, that's um, that's a good question, and um, um, I, I, as a practicing vet, am pretty selective about um, which one of my owners I even arm with banamine, um, let alone any types of sedatives or, or heavier duty, so to speak, pain medications. And when I hand out banamine to any one of my owners, um, they have to basically make an agreement with me that before they administer it, they have me on the phone. So they, you know, that, that's our deal, basically. Okay, um, do I believe that horse owners should have banamine around? Absolutely, a lot of horse owners should, okay? At least those that I trust. All right, and we've got a question here as well from our live audience. It asks, is it true that banamine stops motility in the abdomen, and wouldn't that be bad for a colic case? <laughs> uh, you know, banamines uh, ends up being blocks um, prostaglandins, which do, and it doesn't really matter what they are. Well, but what does matter is they do a lot of different things. So they're actually, generally speaking, uh, good for the gut. Meaning, uh, you can imagine if you, for yourself or, or for some people, um, taking Advil, for example, for heartburn from that, and that's because. Um, they're blocking prostaglandins, which are good for the gut. They also, these same prostaglandins uh, stimulate motility. And so, um, and, and then there's a range of other things they do too. I think then what it comes down to is it's a pragmatic decision. So I've got a painful horse on my hands, so I've got to deal with that. And then I've got all these other things to worry about as far as what this drug might do. And so the, the, the one that takes precedence in that is going to be managing the pain. But um, what, I would, you know, what I would say there is just manage it uh, uh, carefully. And, the, and I really think the best way to do that is to do it with your veterinarian, decide you know, which drug you want to use, how much, and, um, and, and go from there. And just to tag on to that question a little bit, um, as practicing vets, um, even uh, when it comes to needing to administer additional banamine, um, I know many of us even question how frequently we want to do it. You know, what's, what, what interval do we feel most comfortable with based on the case and how the case is going, just because of some of those issues that we have to balance. And, you know, medicating for any type of ailment um, is truly uh, partly a balancing aid. Sure. This, med this medication issue is, um, I know it's controversial. I even got into a bind, an equine journal about this, and then I um, got some letters back that some of them were a bit upset. Well, you're not um, trying to use, it's not supposed to be any kind of scare tactic on um, how you medicate horses. Um, but uh, what I was trying to get across is just be careful and realize that right away on the phone. Um, but that's, that's 
sort of the goal, if that's what you're aiming for, is to try to do that with the veterinarian. Very good. And are there similar issues with butte? We've mostly talked about banamine. Yeah, for whatever what? reason, um, sorry, Jay, uh, no, I interrupted you there. No, I don't know. I don't know why this happened. Because you might actually sort of got tagged as the colic um, soft you, which is the class that is tan, whereas uh, butte, which is in the same class of drug, does the exact same thing, but it got tagged with a treatment of lameness. And mm -hmm. there are, I, I think it's true to say that. Well, at least for Butte, um, if you have a very painful horse because of lameness, it does seem to be uh, more effective. Like the most severe pain I can think of would be uh, laminitis. And Butte, because the horse uh, has a, um, a also a concurrently an injured or damaged colon, um, which you might notice because it has diarrhea or you might notice it for other reasons, um, but uh, but but nonetheless, it's it's it, uh, you're just left with that being the most effective um, in some cases for treating pain. You can use it to treat uh, colic. Uh, most people don't. And I don't know, Jay, if you have any uh, comments on that. I don't typically use it as a. Um, I don't typically use it as a first step. I have used it um, as follow-up treatment for a horse that I thought really needed an anti-inflammatory going out the next couple of days. Um, um, and I knew that cost was a real factor, and, and Butte is so much uh, less costly than Banamine. Um, so I've used it in that way, but I've never used it as primary non-steroidal for treatment myself. You know, the one other uh, interesting thing I've noticed is um, like if you go to other countries, um, uh, the UK, for example, they would rather use um, at least a, a, a large number of them would rather use Butte versus Banamine. So it actually there's some, apparently there's some cultural differences. And mm -hmm. then there are some other. Buscapan is really mm -hmm. popular in Europe, although it is somewhat different in Europe. Well, it's actually quite different. So it has one of the components that we have in Buscapan in this country, but then they, it's uh, in combination with also a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug called um, diperone, um, that they still have that in Canada. We don't have it. It got withdrawn in the market here in the 70s. It's a weak um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Uh, but they choose that as their first line treatment, and uh, and then do, uh, as opposed to banamine. Gotcha. All right, we've got about ten minutes to go in our session. We're going to go to uh, quick supplements. Uh, in the meantime, we're going to move on to uh, try to start answering these a little bit more quickly now, since we're running out of time. Tina from Ontario would like to know what is a step by step by step procedure that an owner should do before calling a vet for colic. Very simple, Tina. Go directly to the phone. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. So go right, go right to the phone. Really make the call to the vet first. They already know, but um, uh, even, if, even if you know the, the items that you should check, which, which for my clients is mainly, if they're capable of it, a TPR, temperature, pulse, and respiration, Okay, that's what I'm going to ask. Sometimes I'll ask them to check mucous membranes, but really I want them on the phone with me first. All right, very good. And uh, some more related questions about first aid for colic. Wendy from South Carolina would like to know if you should keep a horse with colic walking. Yeah, that's a really good question because uh, mostly because we get asked it a lot. That's why it's <laughs> a good question. Um, so. Um, I think there's something to be said, uh, and I, this is completely anecdotal, that walking horses uh, can uh, sometimes relieve uh, the condition. And, and I don't know why that is. Uh, somehow maybe that's tied into uh, gut motility. The other thing is it stops them from um, going down and hurting themselves or hurting other people. If the horse um, is really painful and it's very difficult to get them up and keep them up, 
and you can keep them comfortably down, um, uh, then then let them go down in, the, in that circumstance. Very good. All right, our next question is on uh, colic diagnosis. We've touched on this a little bit, but uh, let's just refresh. Uh, Jayla from Washington would like to know, being a new horse owner, what are the basic signs like that one should look for? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very common question. Also, you know, um, anything that would indicate abdominal pain, which might be, um, might be looking at their sides, kicking at their flanks, um, circling, um, lying down um, for longer periods of time than they normally do, um, lying down but still looking uncomfortable, a gri quote unquote grimace type of look, um, uh, uh, or going up and down frequently. Um, any of those. So I totally agree on that. On that, and then also we've noticed in the hospital that um, there are behavioral signs of colic. So meaning the horses um, don't are not themselves. And so I, I think sometimes owners are the most astute uh, at picking up uh, colic. The horse um, didn't come up in the same order out of the field, or it just doesn't quite seem right, actually can really mean something. And I know you might call the vet and they might say, uh, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, there is actually something to that. Yeah, and, and just interleaving with that, if I have an owner that calls me and tells me that their, their horse just isn't right, I absolutely 100% of the time believe them. I never doubt my owners because they know that horse a whole lot better than I do. For sure. All right. And just real quickly, the results of our poll on where do you most frequently purchase supplements. 12% uh, of our audience says it's with the veterinarian, 38% with the tax store and retailer. Most popular answer, 43% say online, and 8% you don't use any supplements. So that's not something you have to worry about. Um, we mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, looking at changes in vital signs and appearance of gums, et cetera, to assess the severity of colic. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? This one's from Colleen in Connecticut. Yeah, the, um, so the, the, you can tell, you can literally on a time scale tell how uh, severe the colic is to, to a large degree by looking at the gums. Well, the gut is, and then secondarily from that, then how much bacteria or toxin is it releasing into the bloodstream? And so then what, and they will go pale, um, and then they will go um, reddish colored, so we all did, and long, still in a couple seconds. And then um, it's doing this in um, vascular beds like that all over the body, but that's just the one you can see. Um, then uh, it's deoxygenating, so it's getting uh, more and more towards something like purple. And so, and why I say timing is, well, then that's all related to um, how long it, it takes for, um, it's actually prostaglandins that are doing that for the most part. All right, very good. And we're going to ask uh, one more question on diagnosis. Uh, Deborah from Ontario would like to know if gut sounds are still present in horses that are showing signs of colic. Um, Deborah, absolutely. Um, you know, you can have horses that whose you know colic, colic and motility disturbance basically go hand in hand, and so that motility disturbance can lead to hypomotile, no mot hypo being low motility, no motility or um, uh, hypermotility being, you know, increased motility, um, and, and any one of those could be happening. All right. And then moving on into colic causes, uh, Kathy from Texas asked a very popular question. Can weather changes cause colic? I love that um, question. So that, <laughs> go, I, go yeah, you actually put your name there, but I'm going to answer it for go you. Ahead. <laughs> go ahead. See if you like this one. So um, it came up actually as one, in one study as a risk factor. The way I think about weather is that it, um, about changes in uh, pressure, for example, barometric pressure. But I think what happens is sometimes horses uh, do things differently according to the weather. And then that secondarily leads to colic. So, for example, if it's really hot, they might sweat a lot, not move around, that sort of thing. Behavior, and then in, then that secondarily can relate, uh, in some cases, to colic. Mm -hmm. Very good. 
And uh, we've got a question from Dee in Texas who would like to know if a horse is rolling. When the horse rolls, is one or rolls? It's a good question, Dee, and up, up on their feet, kick their heels, go off and eat through. And so I think that the, the, the reality is that when there's a motility disturbance, for whatever the reason, this whole issue of rolling gets, becomes more complicated, and they can, in fact, then exacerbate into a colic or exacerbate an existing colic because, um, because they've either displaced a portion of their colon or actually flipped towards or, or become a volvulus. So, um, uh, you know, it, it is truly the chicken or the egg um, question. There's no harm in your horse going out every day and rolling, but certainly when it comes to horses that are in the midst of colic or you're worried maybe colicking, I advise clients not to let them roll. And we're going to move for your horses. What is the primary condition you are using it to treat? Our next question is from Earl in North Carolina, who would like to know, are moldy forages and or grain a, a cause of colic? Um, yeah, yes. Um, so there's the ultimate situation of moldy forage, um, or actually, excuse me, I should say moldy grain causing a particular kind of um, neurologic problem, but moldy forage is going to get digested differently, and then, uh, well, so let's do the forage first, so um, by differently I mean then suddenly different bacteria are going to, um, they'll be there already, but they'll uh, uh, increase in number and uh, to, to, to digest forage, and, um, and some of those bacteria then um, uh, can then cause increased gas, and you can get colic from that. So it's an indirect relationship. It's not always going to happen, but um, but it can. And then for grain, that so grain can get from the stomach down to the colon in as little as three hours, and um, and so, and it's not really what the colon, which is where it's heading, it's not really what it's looking for. So it's it's, it's designed to digest grass and, uh, and hay and other kinds of forage like haylage. So um, uh, what, what grain will do the same thing. It will cause the uh, bacteria that are already there to increase in number, and they tend to cause more gas, and you tend to get more colic because of it. Very good. And uh, another question fairly, that was very common, uh, we've asked about moldy forages and grain. Are there any particular types of forages or grains that tend to contribute to colic, moldy or otherwise? <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in general, um, I'm going to go to the grain portion of that question. You know, obviously you want, you want clean, good quality forages. Um, and, uh, but talking about this whole grain question, you know, they're, they're, they're the bacteria in the hindgut are um, not really designed for um, digesting grain and grain products. And so um, grain in general, any type of grain or concentrate, um, when it gets to the hindgut, does, does some negative things. The only reason that we, we want to feed grain is to get additional, an additional energy source for our horse above and beyond what forage can provide. So the keynote of a feeding program when it comes to horses and Dr. Blixschlager alluded to this earlier, is that you want to tip the scale towards mostly forage and the least amount of grain that you can do, use or concentrate to get the job done. I think that's, yeah. All right, very good. Um, hey, oh, the, uh, sorry, sorry I interrupt that. Well, no, there's one, because I'm living in the southeast, so I have to bring up this, uh, mm -hmm. well, I feel like I need to bring up this issue of um, Coastal Bermuda hay, which is a warm weather grass, so it grows all the way up through North Carolina very nicely, and then all the way over to Texas. And um, yep, that, that's so we published a study showing that it puts a horse at a roughly, and somebody asked this question quite specifically, roughly fivefold uh, increased risk of colic. But, it, but it's the, um, it's what you do with that hay as a, actually as a hay grower, and I, I got into a bit of a bind with the Coastal Bermuda Hay Growers Association, because um, uh, that's their product. But if you, so it's a fine fiber um, hay, and if it's not cut and cured properly, 
so it's just um, it, it will be a, a, a my guess is and this is just a guess by the way they don't um, they don't chew it well enough and they swallow it when the fibers are too long and then when it goes down the small intestine it plugs up and that's where it plugs them at the uh, ileum so and then the other thing to say about it is that um, and we sort of prove this to ourselves because uh, um, here at the university we inadvertently uh, uh, for the for the herd that's living here change them over to coastal too quickly and um, I think they need to get used to it so the horses that are used to it do much better and by that would mean mix it with your regular hay to start with if you're feeding it um, uh, with a different hay and then um, over a number of days get them used to it. Which should be the case for most feed changes as well, correct? Exactly, exactly. All right. Um, another very common question, um, we're going to take uh, this one from Andrea and Kathy, um, both of California. Are older horses or, uh, more prone or susceptible to colic than younger horses, and are certain breeds more prone to colic? Well, how about if I take the uh, older horse question, and maybe Dr. Blitzschlager can address the breeds. Um, you know, as far as older horses go, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the term geriatric comes to mind, and I like to think of geriatric as a as a condition versus an age. And so, older is really related to to me to the word geriatric. And and as horses age, um, just like just like people, um, metabolic processes start to slow down. So I don't know that there are any statistics, or I don't remember from any of, any of the epidemiology studies that I've read through. That um, that of of older horses as a major factor, but I think there was one study that showed showed um, horses. I believe it was over the age of 18 or 20 to be at a slightly higher risk, and I think that's related to you know just the the overall aging process. So then I'm on to the breed and what. Uh, so we went we talked about minis and what they get. So that's one breed predilection and the other one but the, the breed that pops up the most on epidemiologic studies are Arabians. <laughs> what we don't know is if Arab people that own Arabians are better at reporting that their horse uh, has colic or whether it's truly the breed. So I'm, that doesn't really help you that much but um, but that but it doesn't perhaps it's good to know what's uh, published. Then the, the final, one final example I'll give you are horses that have um, larger inguinal rings. So we're talking now about stallions predominantly. Um, so that's going to be Tennessee walkers, standard breads, um, uh, the, the two that come to mind right away uh, tend to get inguinal hernias a little bit more commonly. Doesn't mean, I mean, we're talking uh, small percentages here, but it's an example of a, of, a, of, a, of a breed that would be predisposed. All right, very good to know. And uh, some other questions, another very common question, do horses who have experienced colic, uh, whether they have surgery or not, do they pre are they more predisposed to getting colic again in the future? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. And you know, um, Dr. Blitzschlager mentioned earlier that um, you know, colic uh, is, by and large, all of the epidemiology studies, and, and I think any equine veterinarian that you would ask is going to explain to you that colic is a management disease. So truly, you know, having one colic does not predispose them to having more colics, but not changing something in their management to accommodate for what was it that, that caused this horse to colic or what digestive disturbance was going on to allow some trigger to have that horse colic, you know, kind of like that weather change or the weather question, which you could translate into how about a weather front or a weather change. Horse have digestive disturbance to begin with, and the weather change and the stress of a weather front coming in was the trigger to send them over the edge. So you really have to you have to you have to try to eliminate as many of the triggers as possible, which comes back to management. Sure. 
And speaking of management, Angela from Illinois would like to know what is the most important thing you can do to prevent colic? Uh, I get this for owning. <laughs> uh, so I've done a surgery. So from it's a much surgery, easier to answer now, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm mostly thinking, you know, I know the coffee shop opens at 6, so i just going to make it for a couple more hours. So in any case, um, uh, the the uh, it, it goes back. It really goes back to the simple stuff, which is not necessarily what people want to hear. But that means increased turnout, increased forage, um, and then uh, perhaps um, a very they're very um, uh, uh, set in their ways as to the way they like to do things. And so it's good to let them. Not you know if you can, as much as you can, which you can't if you're on the road. But as much as you can, do what they're they're used to doing. Um, uh, those sorts of management things versus, um, I mean, there are there are to be considered, but um, but the turnout and the far is most important in my mind. I'm going to move on down to another very common question. Karen from Maryland would like to know if probiotics can help prevent colic. Um, that's an excellent question. You know, um, there's been a lot of, well, there hasn't been a lot of equine-specific research, but there's been a lot of research um, um, in all species uh, spread across the board on um, probiotics and live viable microbes and supplementing the hindgut with them. And um, uh, although there's no direct research um, showing the benefits of um, reinforcing or supporting that microbial population in the hindgut with probiotics, some um, recent work that I've done uh, indicates that it may be helpful. Very good. So if there are some non-conventional methods for treatment, uh, saying that her vet prescribed a pint of whiskey and castor oil. I've used that treatment often, and I get the whiskey and the horse gets the oil. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to answer it that way. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a picky on the brand, but other than that, uh, not very picky. And then we get uh, other, like turpentine is another one that pops mm -hmm. up. Uh, castor oil, by the way, you've got to be really careful with, because although it can um, have a laxative effect, it can also have a damaging effect on the gut. So uh, it's the point where if a horse gets into uh, castor beans and, and eats mm -hmm. a lot of them, um, they can actually get quite sick. I'm not sure. The whiskey, they probably wouldn't phase them. <laughs> there you go. Um, and we're going to hit just one or two more. We're already a little bit over time. We've had. I want to thank everybody again for all the questions that you sent in, and I apologize for not being able to get to all of them. We just have simply had way too many. Um, we're going to uh, move on to a question from uh, Mark from Pennsylvania, who would like to know what are some of the recent advancements in colic surgery techniques. Okay, so um, I uh, people tend to talk about things like uh, stapling instruments, but that's been at least uh, 15, 20. And so the actual technique, we certainly, I mean, surgeons love to argue about the best way to do it, and they're always convinced that the way they do it is the best. And uh, and I always like those arguments. <laughs> but in any case. Um, because uh, it brings out some interesting information. I think the, the medical care that surrounds the surgery. So the medical care within surgery would mean, um, that means the anesthesia person um, making sure they're hydrated, that their blood pressure is um, normal, um, their electrolytes are normal. And then some things we do inside the, uh, inside the abdomen are, um, we actually add material that uh, uh, you use uh, to lube up around. We have it even uh, sterilized and pour that in. And what that is supposed to do, or what it, what it does uh, seem to do, is prevent adhesions. And that goes back to an ocean I had later after surgery. Um, there's, there's intensive care-related uh, medications that can be added. So in other words, if we know that, that the bowel is always, always tell the anesthesiologist and then they conditions um, such as which is the local anesthetic, but also has an anti-inflammatory effect for some reason. Um, and so they can get ready with... Uh, Very good. All right. 
right. And uh, we've had a number of questions about feeding bran to, uh, to help prevent colic. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I will. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't seen much advantage to bran. Um, and, uh, you know, most of my clients, if they've done it, they've done it intermittently. Um, I don't, uh, other, it's a um, big advantage. And, and uh, I'm bigger if you have any comment on that. Um, I don't typically. I don't think it, it does. What we've done is, uh, although we do see the horse after a, uh, either a major colic event um, or, and then particularly one that has had surgery, and again, it's going to be adding small amounts of forage um, or grazing them. Those are great ways to get them started again. But then um, the brand mash question comes up. And actually what we've gone to, gotten to doing more recently is uh, using some of the um, a little bit newer high-fat content um, grain seeds, just small amounts of that. Now, you can actually mix that with bran, but there's an... The specific reason for doing that, you're really trying to jumpstart the gut, and plus you're recognizing that horse then, I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of energy, or they burn through a lot of energy if they have severe colic. Um, and so then, and uh, we want to be able to replace that as soon as we can um, uh, so they don't lose too much weight. Yeah, and go, just jumping on the prophylactic question and the prophylactic use of brand um, on a regular basis may have some beneficial properties to the hindgut. If you're helping the hindgut and the health of the hindgut, you're reducing your risk of colic. The poll on if you use a treat, 11% of the audience says they use it for diarrhea, 13% for weight loss, 921% for chronic colic. And um, we're going to take probably just two more questions quickly. Alicia from Minnesota would like to know if a horse is very flatulent or gassy, should we, you should be concerned about colic. If it does, but I don't mean so. They naturally uh, produce a lot of gas, and uh, uh, they're so they're supposed to do that. And and so if they're passing a lot of gas, um, or you can even hear their guts gurgling a lot, um, but the horse looks perfectly happy and healthy, then um, I would gas can't get out, and then they get a, a big gas uh, accumulation inside the uh, colon, the hind gut again. And, um, and, and those are the ones that, that we worry about. gas, it can slip around pretty quickly, and, um, and so we get concerned about that. One from Susan, a live attendee. Any ideas to increase water consumption in a horse that isn't interested in, prone to, in this prone to impact? With electrolyte or salt supplementation, um, if we're talking about wintertime, which I get that que this question often, um, uh, you know, you that you have um, both both a warm and a cool water so source available in the winter and actually reduce their water consumption in the winter because of it. So um, so I usually um, I recommend that my, my horses themselves um, have both available to them for wintertime use. And then electrolytes or salt are the most common uh, stimulants to uh, uh, peak, the, peak their thirst. Sure. See, and I get the, the same answers. And just, just, I just one thing I wanted to add in is, mm -hmm. well, some people just want to know how much are they supposed to drink. Well, it, the answer is so. That, so let's say you have an average-sized adult horse. Um, it's one liter an hour. So it's 24 liters in a day. Well, that might not help if you um, because of the metric system. So there's four liters um, in a gallon. So. Uh, quite a bit. It is. Yeah, sometimes they'll drain it all at once. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And let's take uh, just one more question from Brenda in Texas who would like to know how much fat you recommend in feed and how does that affect colic? Oh, that's a very good question. You know, um, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the high fat feeds. Um, you know, to me, um, adding maximal fat to their feed um, uh, helps to reduce the amount of um, non-structural carbohydrates that we're feeding them, or starches in the grains and concentrates. Um, I've I've typically used as a rule of thumb about 10% fat within the concentrate ration, you know, and that's that's just a rule of thumb because some of it depends on how much of the concentrate you feed. 
um, and the proportion of that to forage, you know, haze and, and pasture. Um, but I've, I've been pretty safe and, and been pretty uh, happy with 10% uh, fat added feeds. There are some 12 and 14 percenters out there now, you know, total feeds. And, uh, and then you've got your fat supplements, which may be 24 to 30% fat. Um, those aren't meant to be fed um, as a complete feed. Um, so, so in in a in a normal feed or concentrate ration, ten to ten percent is, is my baseline general number. The feed I have my horses on right now currently is eight percent fat. Very good. All right. Well, we've uh, we've already run over time, and I want to uh, say that's all the time we have today. Wrap this up. I'd like to thank you, Drs. Blixlager and Altman for your time today and answering everybody's questions. And of course, I'd like to thank you, our audience, for participating. There were some really great questions. I apologize for not being able to get to all of them, but there's just no way. I think we had 400 questions come in ahead of time. So I appreciate everyone's patience, and I hope you really enjoyed the sessions. The recording of the session will be available soon on thehorse.com. And last but not least, thanks to Assure Digestive Aid for bringing this free session to you today. Visit them online at shop.arenas.com slash c-4 dash assure evening. Thank you. Thanks a Thank lot. You. Really enjoyed it. It was Very fun. Good. <laughs> Thank you.